Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And if you think we're going to be talking about Joe Biden and Donald Trump and things like that tonight, wrong election. But there is an election coming up, isn't there? Just a little less than a week away. And let me encourage you. That was a good little sideway to get in there, wasn't it? I want to encourage you that as an American citizen, you do have the privilege to vote. It's a privilege. There are lots of places you don't get to vote on who your leaders are. And they stick them in power, and that's just how it is. Um, but we have the privilege to be able to vote. And I would encourage you to take your privilege that you've been given and to vote, and to vote biblically. Sometimes we look at it, it's either, you know, donkey or elephants or whatever it is, right? I look up every candidate and I look at what, where they stand on important issues. I look at where they stand on abortion. I look at where they stand on same-sex marriage. I look at the different areas and I vote with what the Bible says. Now, this is the thing. You say, are they going to stick and do what they... They're politicians. I don't expect them to do what they say they're going to do. They say certain things to give votes. But I can at least on my end, I can do my due diligence and vote for the best possible candidate. There are a couple, you look, if you have filled out your ballot already or you're getting ready to, and I know there's other thoughts that happen. Well, and I've heard Christians say this. They're all rigged now. You, first off, it might seem like it, but you don't know all the details of it. And God is in control. Do what you have control of and vote. And vote biblically and leave the rest to the Lord. That's all you can do. Leave it there. And vote biblically. And do your research. You don't just take your pen and I'll just, I'll be honest with you. Not every, and I am a conservative. I'm a strong conservative. More conservative than most of those that I would vote for. But it's the best option on some of those things. But just because, and just I'm using myself as an example here, just because it says Republican doesn't mean that they're a great person to vote for. You can, that God's given you this thing called Google. You can know anything you want to know about anybody that's running for office. And you can see what they say, where they stand on topics and issues. And you say, but that takes time. I know we don't like that, do we? We want everyone to do all the work for us. And if you are, if that's you and you want everyone to do the work for you, if you go back a couple weeks ago on my Facebook page, um, there's a pastor here in town that is big politically, Jack Hibbs. I like him. And some people don't like him as I like him. I like his stand for opening up church. I like the guy. And uh, I don't know if I could put up with that all the time, but I like him a lot. And he went through and he put his recommendations for voting. You say, well, and I shared his recommendations. But did you know before I shared his recommendations, just because someone else says these were good, I actually went through and I typed in Google every single person and looked up where they stood, and then I put it up because I agreed with it. So it's a good thing. And so the election next week, and you say, uh, one thing I do know, and this is what I'm grateful for, do you realize no one's voting on if God is still God? No one's voting if Jesus is still on the throne. He still is. That we aren't voting him in as the judge. He's still the judge. He's still right where he belongs. And no one and nothing can change that. Ephesians chapter number 1 tonight. 
And man, the older I get and the more time I spend in God's word, I love Paul's epistles. And I, I love, don't get me wrong, I love Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy too. And First Chronicles, I do. But there's just something about Paul's epistles. And especially Romans and Ephesians. Those, I just love them both. And uh, Ephesians 1, verse number 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then, man, Paul goes even further, having predestinated us. Lord willing, next Wednesday night, we're going to look at predestination and free will together next week. That's where we're going to be. And these are big topics. I'll tell you, there are many people that, for and for sake of time, I'm not going to go too deep into the history of it and everything else. But we just celebrated a few days ago. Some people called it Halloween. Some people call it Reformation Day. That's the day that Martin Luther, it's the anniversary of when he nailed his thesis on his... Uh, Catholic Church and where he protested what they believed. And the just shall live by faith, Romans 1 17. During that time there were protesters that came out. One of them was a man by the name of John Calvin. And John Calvin and I'm and don't get too mad at me with what I say. Don't and if anybody does or online, whatever. But I, sincere, I do not think that he was a bad man trying to create bad things. My personal opinion, you hear that, personal opinion is, he tries to explain some things about God that we don't, will never be able to answer. And there are some, you got to understand, when, with God being who he is, you're never going to answer everything about God. And I know there are a lot of people, I want all my answer. I want answers to my questions. When it comes to God, you will not have all of your answers. You just won't. That's where you, you walk by faith and not by sight. And is that a cop-out for things? That's not a cop-out. It's the truth. When you have someone who is so far superior to us and not even on the same level, you're not going to understand it all. And I think he went a little too far on some of his thoughts. But one happened, and there are many people that have different ideas. We're a Baptist church. And one of the things that happens throughout time is, you know, sometimes we lose sight of those things. It used to be that a Baptist church, there was things that a Baptist church stood for. And we stand for those things. I am a Baptist because of what a Baptist stands for. Some people are just a Baptist now because, oh, I go to Victory Baptist Church, so now I'm a Baptist. But they really don't know why they're a Baptist overall. And I know you say, well, does it matter if I'm Baptist? What matters is that you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. That's the most important thing. But I will tell you this. If you want to be as, and this is the thing, Baptists, there's a lot of different Baptists out there, a lot of different thoughts out there, a lot of things wrong with Baptists, just like there are any other group. 
but I'm a Baptist for a reason, by conviction, and the stand that Baptists take on certain topics. And so if we were to go back, look at when did the Baptist church start? You have some Baptist wackos that would say it goes all the way back to John the Baptist. And, okay, you want to say that? I know his name's John the Baptist. I get that. He was John the Baptizer. And so, and then I've heard people say you can trace it all the way back to John the Baptist and then the time of the apostles, and there's been a Baptist line all the way through, and they mention groups like the Paulicians. They mention other groups, the Waldensians later on. They mention a lot of groups that we would look at a lot of their doctrines and things and be like, so I'm not one of those that's going to say a Baptist church has always been around. There have been Bible-believing Christians for a long time. That's what a Baptist should be. And I'll tell you this, if Baptists want to go a different direction than what the Bible says, I'll gladly drop being a Baptist and I'll just be a Biblicist. That's what I am. But I am a Baptist. There's a reason why I am. And there, so at some point, they started calling this group of Christians the rebaptizers. They called them the Anabaptists. That's really the earliest definition we have for a Baptist. And so because what happened was in the Catholic Church, you would get sprinkled, right? And for a long time, the Catholic Church was the dominant, and this is the thing, there were always Bible-believing Christians around, but the Catholic Church was the dominant religious force. And they would go into cities and want to see your papers that you've been sprinkled. They would actually do that. And so one of the thing, and so with that thought, so when someone came to Christ biblically, and after they got saved, they would get scripturally baptized and go underwater. And do you know that many Baptists, there, there are many, many Catholics that drowned Baptists because of where they stood. Many Catholics have murdered many Bible-believing Christians throughout the ages. And I'm not saying that there are, ba- there are a lot of good people in that today, in that religion today. They don't get all that. That's why an old-school Catholic would never come into a Baptist church. They would never. But nowadays, they don't know the difference. They don't even get it. And, and I think that's great. Maybe we can get the gospel to them, Christ alone. Not the Pope, not your father, and not a sprinkling, but Christ and Christ alone. And so that's, baptism's a big deal. But when you had these churches come out of the Catholic Church, they, their doctrine started to build. And John Calvin, it's where we get the idea of Calvinism. Now, Calvinism, I could break it down, and maybe sometime I'll go deeper into it. Basically, you think of the word tulip, and you can get the five points of Calvinism. I would say a five-point Calvinist will probably not try and lead people to the Lord. I believe a four-pointer will. I do think that some of the stuff in Calvinism is good, but there's also some that is not. But in 1689, there was a group of Baptists that started their own sect of Baptists, and they got the Baptist Confession of 1689. And what it did was it took the ideas of John Calvin and Calvinism and brought them into the Baptist world. Because there were things, and I'm not going to go into all of it tonight, but there was a reason why a Baptist and a Calvinist didn't get along very well. In fact, did you know, I'll just give you this, I'll just give you this and then we'll move on. 
But you know, the one thing that the Catholics agreed on with the Lutherans, you know, Martin Luther and John Calvin, that you got your Presbyterian. Do you know the one thing they all agreed on? The fact they hated the Baptists. They did. Literally, and we can laugh, you can laugh tonight, but literally, John Calvin, Martin Luther, these men, they still hated Baptists so much, they persecuted them for their stand on baptism and things. And so we look at this tonight, and so 1689, the, the Baptist world got introduced to Calvinism in it. Now we would say tonight, and you look back at a lot of great Baptist preachers of old, one of the greatest we would look at would be like a guy like Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon had a lot of Calvinism in him. I have a lot of people that don't like it when I say that. I had a pastor a while back, I was somewhere, and he came up to me out of nowhere. He's like, what do you think about Charles Spurgeon? I said, oh, you mean the good Baptist that was also a Calvinist? Oh, he ripped me a new one for about 25 minutes on that thought. But it's true. And you listen to his words. And so one of the areas that's been the biggest debate would be this area of election. Being chosen by God. What Calvinism believes is that God has chosen some and others he's rejected. There is no free will when it comes to salvation. Only God's elect are the ones who get in. And, it's a, and, and this is the thing. This is one of the areas I struggle, because we've got, I, we have a few Calvinists that will come to our church, and I've got friends that are strong Calvinists. The area that I cannot see eye to eye at all with them is free will. If there was no free will, why do you put the stupid tree in the garden? That tree's caused a lot. That tree, that, well, I know it's Adam's fault, but if there was no free will, then the tree wouldn't be there, right? They wouldn't have a choice to obey or not. So with that in mind, we just read in verse number four, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We'll take some time and talk about what biblical election means. Number one, as we dive into our notes tonight, the word election or the elect means chosen to choose, called, or to call. Now, I think you guys understand that, right? Because next Tuesday, there is an election that you're going to choose a candidate. And from the popular, whatever the popular vote in those areas, they will be called to service. So the word election is not a hard word to see. It means chosen, to choose, called, or to be called. As I mentioned, we use it in that political sense. But as we look at this, I want you to see, I want us to see tonight, number two, the biblical use of the word election. Now what we're going to do is we are going to look at it from the Old Testament perspective and look at it in a corporate sense. And then we're going to look at it in a personal sense. And then I'll break it down a little bit more from there. So as we see letter A underneath number two, we see in a corporate sense relating to a body of people. So when we talk about election or a group or a body of people chosen by God, where does your mind go, first of all? Number one, the nation of Israel. God 
chose Israel. And there are many verses that tell us these things. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 4, verse 37, And because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them, and brought thee out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 8, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee, talking about Israel, to be a special people unto himself, Above all people that are upon the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you are more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you and because he kept the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord made you out or brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And you see, they weren't chosen because they were somebody special. They were chosen by God's grace in all reality, as we look right here. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 45, verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect. You see that? My elect. I have even called thee by thy name, and I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Isaiah 65, verse number 9. It says, And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, and an um, inheritor of, the amount of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. Isaiah 65, 22, They shall not build, nor, inhabit, nor another inhabit. They shall not plant, nor eat. For as the day of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And so what I'm showing you is, when we look at the word elect, or we think about chosen, in a corporate sense, we see Israel. And God chose Israel. Out of all the people in the world, he chose Israel to be his people. And we'll talk more about this later on when we look at a few things in Romans chapter number 9. You can even look at, um, in Matthew 24. Now, People like to say here in Matthew 24, this is talking about the saved. But you've got to understand that in Matthew, it is written to the Jews, portraying Christ as the king of the Jews. So, and you've got to understand, God's not done working with the Jews. There's still a seven-year period, a one week of years left, that God is going to work through Israel. And so this is part of that time. Matthew 24, verse 22, And except those days should be shortened, there shall no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. So as we look at tonight the biblical use of the word election, we see in a corporate sense we see the nation of Israel. Now then, number two, we see a host of angels. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and look at what it says, and the elect angels. There are chosen angels that thou observe these things without referring one before, preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. So we see the fact that a corporate group, you have the nation of Israel was chosen by God. You see there are angels that are chosen by God, or messengers as we look there. You also could see number three, the kingdom of God. We are, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2, verse number 9, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that we should show forth the praise of him who hath 
called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past you were not a people, but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. As we look at this and we see this before our eyes, we see that Israel was chosen by God. We see there are chosen angels. And we see that in all reality, we, you, you realize you are part of God's kingdom, right? We are. We are a chosen generation. As believers tonight, we are chosen in the Lord. It's in the corporate sense. But we see next, and I don't know where I'm, what am I at now, letter B. We look at a personal sense relating to an individual. When we think about this, so not only do you have a corporate sense of election, but you have a personal sense. When you think about this personal sense, you see, number one, that Jesus is God's elect. Jesus is the one chosen by God to redeem the world. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 42, verse number one, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. The Bible tells us in Matthew 12, verse number 18, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom I, my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. Jesus referring to himself right here. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2, verse number 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. You see the fact that when we talk in a personal sense of election, we see that Jesus was chosen by God. He is God's elect. Do you see that there? Okay. We see number two, that believers are God's elect. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, verse number 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. We looked at this verse last week. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, for ye see your, do you see the word calling? You see your calling, brethren. How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of this world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are. And if those verses don't confuse you a little bit when you read them all, just read a few times and it can confuse you a little bit. Colossians 3, verse number 12 says, Put on therefore as the elect of God. Do you see how we are the elect of God? Put on holy and beloved, or holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness and longsuffering as the elect of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse number 4, knowing, brother and beloved, your election of God. James 2, verse number 5, hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. 1 Peter 1, verse number 2, and we're going to talk about this verse a lot in a few minutes. Elect, or chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, 
unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of... Uh, some of you thought, oh, the sprinkling. No, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. We could look at the fact that not only has God chosen um, in us as believers, but you go number three there in the list. There are various individuals that God chose. God chose Moses to deliver the children of Israel. God chose Abraham to start his nation with. God chose David to be the king. God chose individuals, and there's various individuals that he chose. And then you also got to realize that God has also chosen various places. You know, why is Jerusalem so special to God? That city is, it's, it's an important city. And you look at the news and different things, that city still, it's brought up all the time. It's a city I want to go visit some, at some point. But God has done these things. So what I want you to see, and the gist of it from what we've seen so far tonight is, we see that the word election means to be chosen or to be called. And then we've seen in the biblical usage of it, we see corporately God chose the nation of Israel. There are angels that he's chosen. And also we see the fact that he's chosen the kingdom of God. We look and we break that down more personally, that Jesus is God's chosen vessel to wash away our sins. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We'll talk about that more in a minute. We see the fact that as believers, we are chosen in Christ Jesus, as we looked at a few minutes ago. So what I want you to understand tonight is that we are chosen. So when you, think at, when you look at that, obviously what you're going to think is, so like tonight, if I'm going to have someone come help me up here, I'd be like, all right, I want Brianna to come up here. I want um, Eva to come up here. I want Abby to come up here. And you'd be like, you chose them to come up here. I chose them, and I didn't. And then well, the thought that would run through a lot of you in this room is, why didn't he choose me? Literally, I was looking at the ones giving me the funniest look, and then they go, that's why I picked those three. So, and, uh, but that's not how it works. Why would Jesus come and die for the sins of the whole— no, what Calvinism tries to say is he only came and died for the elect, the chosen few. And I know we have passages of Scripture where there are different things that are said. Like we're going to look in a few minutes where the Lord said, you know, Israel have I loved, or Jacob have I loved, and Esau I've hated. So you're saying, well, God chose to love one, he chose to hate another. We'll break it up biblically in a couple minutes because that's where Calvinism gets one of its passages, and we'll look at Romans 9 in a minute. But what I want you to see, number three tonight, is I want you to see the basis of God's election. How does it happen? So God has chosen us, right? So as a child of God tonight, as a saved child of God, you are chosen. Don't lose sight of that. But what's the basis? How are we chosen? How are some not chosen? How does all that work if we're chosen, right? Well, letter A, we see God's foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge plays an important part in our being chosen. Now look with me at 1 Peter 1, verse number 2. 
Look at what it says. Elect, just look at the first phrase. For, for my Calvinistic friends, this, is, this breaks it down so well. Elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So how are we chosen? According to the foreknowledge of God. When we talk about what is God's foreknowledge, are you ready? Let me break this down for you. And we'll let Matthew get his mint open right there. Russ, we're going to have to get silent mints that open up, make it a little not. So I, I, was, I opened one during prayer earlier, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if everyone can hear me when I'm doing that. And uh, I'm just teasing. It's nice of Russ to bring mints for everybody. But I really think he does it because he thinks everyone's breath needs help. I think that's really what he does. And, so, and then if he gives you a lot, it's because your breath is really bad. And he gave me like six or seven tonight. So I get it. I get it, Russ. And so when we think about this, think with me for a minute. God is all-knowing. Am I right on that statement? He's omniscient. So this is the thing. Back before he ever created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, God knew everything about them. God knew when they would mess up, when they would sin, God knew all the details of it. Since God is all-knowing and he's omniscient is the word that we would use, being all-knowing, that means he knows everything. Like, let me, like tonight, you in this room, we know nothing. I'll tell, think about this right now. We think the church is going to get over at 730. We think. I don't know that for sure. And none of you know that for sure. We don't know that. Um, you, we, we don't have that knowledge. You really don't know what time you're going to go to bed tonight. And you don't know how much sleep you're going to get. And you don't know what kid's going to come into your room and wake you up in the middle of the night. Or if there's going to be rain like last night that woke me up in the middle of the night. I'm hearing this water. I'm like, what's going It's raining outside? I must be dreaming. No, I was, I was awake. We don't know things. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You might have a schedule and think this is what's going to happen, but you don't know for sure what's going to happen. You don't, today, my sister, she needed help with going to an appointment. She said, it will be fast. It will be fast if you just help me get there. And I helped her get there. We got there. And an hour into it, I get a text from her. Um, it's probably going to be two to three more hours. <laughs> yep, fast. And f for a doctor, that is kind of fast, isn't it? And uh, then later on in the day, my parents had a test done a couple weeks ago, and so the doctor calls me with the results. They said, we're going to call you at 2.50. So I made sure that around 2.50 I was going to be at a good spot. I'm driving the car, and Kaiser Permanente is calling me at 1.22. I answer the phone call. I'm like, hi, we're calling early. Oh, no kidding, no kidding. You don't ever do anything early. I was expecting it to be late. And so they, we talked on the phone while I was driving. I have it over my speaker, whatever, got it all done. But I had a plan for the day. My plan did not happen because I don't have foreknowledge. The Lord knew what was going to happen all day long today. He knows what's happening in this world. He knows who wins the elections next week. He knows who's the next president of the United States. He knows who's the next president 50 years from now if America's still around then. He knows all of it. So with that being said, because God knows everything, he knows from eternity past through what's going to happen in eternity future. 
Say, do you know the only reason tonight we have a clue that there's a rapture, that there's a millennium, and that there's an end judgment is because the Bible tells us so? And God's the only one who knows that? Satan doesn't know when the time's up. He doesn't have all knowledge. God does. So according to this verse, it says that we're elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So when we think about this, I think the verse we read a little bit ago in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Before he said, let there be light, you and I were already chosen. Before he ever breathed life into man and man became a living soul, he had chosen us. You say, well, why did he choose us and why didn't he choose others? You've got to understand something. God knows all things, correct? I am not the smartest person around, but I figured this one out. So if God knows everything, which he does, for all time he knows everything, then that means that before God ever created man, God knew 2,000 years later or 5,000 years later who would call on him to be saved and who would be his chosen people. That's what election is about. That's what it, God's foreknowledge. So we are chosen tonight because God knows who will call on him and who will not call upon him. That means there are chosen people out in our world tonight that are not saved yet, that are really not, well, they are chosen in him, but they're not chosen yet because they haven't trusted in him yet. But before they take their last breath on this earth, they will trust in him, and they've been chosen before the world ever began. That's what the Bible says. Why do we got to complicate that? We don't need to complicate it. But we do, and we cause issues with other Christians and mess people up because they're not chosen. They're not part of it. When we think on these things, the Bible makes it clear. In 1 Peter 1, verse number, it talks about who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Think about Jesus in, Re in Revelation 13, 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So you see that before Jesus and before Jesus ever died, before man was ever created, God knew that Jesus would have to die. And he was the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. God doesn't dwell in time like we do. That's a whole other lesson I could give you there. We're stuck in time. God's in eternity. A lot more that could be said there. But what I want you to understand is this. In eternity past, a sovereign, all-knowing God chose or elected to do these things. First of all, he elected or chose to send his only begotten son in the world to die for the sins of mankind. And then he elected or chose to save any and all who would put their faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what election is all about. He did not just choose individuals. He didn't reject some. People reject him. It's a choice 
that is made. In God's omniscience, God knew that man would sin and mess up. So he determined there to send his son to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And anyone who has put their trust in him in their lifetime are chosen by him and not rejected. When we look and we think about those things, there's a lot more that I could say. And a lot more verses I could give you as well. We need to keep on moving. We see, as we talk about the basis of God's, um, God's election, we see God's foreknowledge. We also see God's calling. You say, well, what do you mean by that? There's a, there are two verses, and I wrote them there out for you. It says in Matthew 20, verse 16, and in Matthew 22, 14, context matters with the Bible and verses. So this is mentioned in both passages. So Matthew 20, verse 16 says, So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. Then in Matthew 22, verse number 14, it says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Now when we look at this, look at what many are called. All are called. But not everyone receives it. Not everyone wants it. The first one in Matthew 20 was a parable about being a servant. Matthew, the second one in 22, is a parable about salvation. But as we look at it, we see that it was issued all, but it was only effective on those who accepted the call. We see the Bible makes it clear that God's call is a universal call. Acts 2.39, for, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That call is made for anyone. God isn't willing that any should perish, not just the ones he's chosen. He's chosen all those who have trusted in him. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24, But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then we see number three, when we talk about the base of it, it's God's grace. It's God's grace. There was nothing special about the children of Israel. Why God picked them. We read earlier, remember? We read in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse number, or chapter seven, verse six through eight. For thou art an holy people unto the, you're separated people, and the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto him, above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all people. And Jews are, you know, a lot, you look at, they're pretty crooked with a lot of things. A lot of our world's issues today, there are a lot of Jewish people behind a lot of those things. There's a lot of things I could say there, but God chose them. You know, and if you were God, you might have chosen someone else, but God chose Israel. God knows what he's doing. We think about us. We were in darkness. We were called to his marvelous light. We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. The basis of election comes from God's foreknowledge, God's calling, God's grace. 
There's nothing that we did except answer the call. We chose. The difference tonight between a believer and a non-believer is the fact that you chose Christ. You must repent. Oh, didn't we talk about that word already? Remember it was John the Baptist and Jesus. You need, hey, hey, Israel, you need to leave that Judaism and you need to turn to Christ. A decision is made. Free will. We'll talk more about that some other time. As we close tonight, I wanted to do a little bit of service to the two passages that Calvinists use the most to talk about their beliefs. And if you don't know much about Calvinism, just don't worry about it. If you do and you have questions, these two passages are two that they go to often. First, I want you to go to second. So number four is important passages on election. And the key to these passages is honestly looking at what the Bible has to say. First passage I want you to go to is 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. This passage in 2 Thessalonians is used often to teach that God chooses between individuals. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse number 13. It says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And so they like to take that verse because you see that phrase there, chosen you to salvation. It explains that we are chosen to salvation, right? Through the Spirit, the truth, and the gospel. But is this passage written, who's it written to? All believers, brethren. And isn't it true that all believers in Christ are chosen? Now I'll take you to the big one, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Now you say, Pastor, are you going to read the whole chapter? I told you you don't know if we're getting out at 7.30 or not, and you still don't know. And I don't know if I'm reading the whole chapter or not, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It would do you good, to, and some of you that didn't read your Bible today, I should read it, so you at least get a chapter of your Bible tonight. That would be a good thing, right? Romans chapter number 9. And as we look at Romans chapter 9, this is probably the biggest chapter that would be used to say that God chooses between individuals in the matter of salvation. But one thing I want you to know before we even read this is this is not referring and talking about individuals. This is talking about the nation of Israel. That already stops the argument there. You say, well, look at what it says there in verse 13. I know. As is written, Jacob have I loved... But Esau have I hated. That is not referring, and this is the thing at this moment. This is referring, you read this in context here, it is referring to the nation of Israel and the Edomites, the sons of Esau, his people. Now let's think for a minute. 
So it does say, look at the verse there. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It does say very clearly that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Do you see that right there? You say, well, how do you explain that? God chose to love one, and he chose not to love another and hate one. Does it coincide with anything I've said tonight? Does God have foreknowledge? There's a big difference in the way, and this is the thing. Let's talk about Jacob and Esau for a minute. We'll not worry about their nations for a minute, but their nations are a great reflection of both of them in all reality. You know, so Jacob have I loved. Was Jacob a good man? Let's just be honest. Was Jacob a good man? No. He's a trickster. He's a liar. He's deceitful. He tries to play games with God. There's nothing good about Jacob. Let's talk about Esau. He was very hairy. He, um, he was very hungry. He was a typical man thinking he was going to die because he was hungry, right? I need food. Give me food. I'm going to die if I don't have food. Come on, dude. You're not going to die. You're going to be okay. He's wanting to give everything away just for a bowl of chili. Basically it. A bowl of beans. He gave his birthright away. The big difference was the way they repented before God and who did and who did not. The reason why Jacob was used by God and his name changed to Israel and why Esau never went anywhere. So let's put it into perspective. There's Brian and an unsaved person that never turns to Christ. I am just as wicked as the unsaved person. Esau and Jacob, neither one were good. None are good. In fact, isn't that what the Bible says? I think the Bible's pretty clear about that. So since none are good, the only difference between being loved by God or hated by God comes down to what you've done with his son. And in God's foreknowledge, he knew what Jacob would do. In his foreknowledge, he knew what Esau would do. There's a reason why God blessed one and didn't bless the other. We use the example. And uh, Eva, you were helping me with this one. Remember our Pharaoh comments? We were talking about Pharaoh and how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, bef- and I could and I show you these passages, and her and I were talking about these things just last week, last two weeks. And in fact, it even talks about, in this passage, it talks about Pharaoh some in Romans chapter number 9. And look, look at verse number 14. It says, so after it says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I had, hated, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he'll have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now when we look at that and we think about, did he harden Pharaoh's heart? The Bible talks about that, doesn't it? One of the things that I was showing Eva, and I should have brought my, oh, my phone's right here. 
Oh, my phone is right here. Because I was thinking about it as I was getting into the message here that I wasn't sure if I was going to um, if I was going to go deep into Pharaoh. And I'm not going to go long into Pharaoh because, like I said, we don't know how long we're going to go tonight. I don't know how long I'm going. But we're almost done. Just bear with me here for a minute. When I want you to see a couple things about Pharaoh. I want you to go with me to Exodus chapter number 5. Can you go there with me? Exodus chapter number 5. Actually, go chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Because this is the thing. This plays all in. Because if God hardened Pharaoh's heart and God made Pharaoh do what he did then at the end of the day, Pharaoh didn't have a free will to do as he wanted to. God made him do it. Look at what the Bible says in Exodus chapter number 4. And I think this is, I think what this will show you is a clear picture of God's foreknowledge. So look at chapter 4. Look at verse number um, 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, when thou goest to return, so has Moses gone into, back into Egypt yet? No. He says, when you do, when thou goest to return to Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. Go to chapter 7. Verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of this land, out of his land, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land. Now, Go down to, cha to chapter 7 there. Look at verse 13. The first encounter you have of Pharaoh and Moses. This is the first time. But what did God say twice? That he would harden Pharaoh's heart, right? Did God say that? Now look at chapter 7, verse 13. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart right there? Who hardened it? Look right there. And look at the next verse. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refused to let the people go. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart to begin with? Pharaoh did. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He wouldn't let the people go. He refused. So when God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh chose to harden his own heart. And God let his heart stay the way Pharaoh chose to have his heart. That's what you see in this passage. We go further on. If you want to take more time, we can. You want to take more time? We take more time. 
You could look at chapter 7, verse 22. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken unto them, as the Lord had said. Oh, God's foreknowledge. He knew this, didn't he? He did. Um, look at chapter 8, verse 15 with the frogs. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Chapter 9, verse number 12. It says, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So do you see there are times where Pharaoh hardened his own heart? And then we see that the Lord hardened his heart. Do you see that there? We could look at chapter um, 9, verse 34. It says, And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart. Who made the decision? Who sinned? Did God make Pharaoh sin? Has God ever made someone sin? No. Pharaoh sinned. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God knew that. And God chose at times to continue what Pharaoh, the decision that Pharaoh already made. There comes a point when someone has heard the gospel over and over and over again that they, get, they turn into a reprobate and they will not get saved. They rejected Christ. And there's a point that that happens. What we look and what we see is that if we were to go through all the plagues tonight, in the, the fir, we hear four times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and six times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It's very clear that Pharaoh explicitly hardened his own heart and sinned. And that God... hardened his heart too but it was after Pharaoh made the decision the point I'm trying to make to you is and we could look at, we could look at other people because this is where if you go down this line that there's no free will if there's no free will then God made Adam and Eve sin in the garden if there is no free will then God made Pharaoh sin God does not tempt us with evil he, and he tempts no man with evil. He does not. So, it is so either the Bible contradicts itself and the Bible lies, or man has been given free will. And Pharaoh made his choice, and Pharaoh had to live with his consequences because of the choices he made. Now, this is the thing. We're going to stop right there. You might have like 10,000 questions coming into your mind. You are free to ask me any question you want to about what we've talked about tonight. There are some things you're never going to get a complete answer from. But what I do know is that we look at Pharaoh for an example. God knew how Pharaoh would be from the beginning to the end. He knew when Pharaoh would let the people go. And God used Pharaoh's hard heart to teach the Egyptians who he was and the children of Israel who he was. But Pharaoh 
chose it, and God used it. Got any more questions about that? You can see me, or we'll point you to someone who's smarter than me and let them help you out.